Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. This is Patrick Georgioff coming at you from sunny Las Vegas, home of the Maddox Trauma, Critical Care, and Acute Care Surgery Conference. The Maddox Conference is literally the longest-running show in town at 55 consecutive years. For those who haven't had the opportunity to attend, I want to point out just how unique this conference is and that the focus is solely on clinical topics. Every talk, every panel, and every case discussion is relevant and practical, much like we try to do here at Behind the Knife. Today's episode is part one of two in which we use case-based discussions to hammer home key points from talks given by some of the biggest names in trauma, critical care, and acute care surgery. Enjoy. All right, I'm back with a very, very special guest, Dr. Dennis Kim, <laughs> whose voice you may recognize, silky smooth voice you may recognize oh, from funny. Trauma ICU Rounds, uh, literally one of my favorite podcasts. Oh, thank uh, you, I've listened Patrick. to every single episode. I think it's top-notch stuff, and uh, we look forward to having Dr. Kim on for a, a, a full episode in the, in the near future. But um, Dr. Kim is Trauma Medical Director of Island Health Services on Vancouver Island and was recently came from L.A. County Harbor UCLA. A system. This is a, a new position for him and a very exciting one. And you uh, here at the Maddox Conference talked about a number of different things, but one of them was the great contrast conspiracy, right? So shattering myths about IV contrast for CT scans. Yeah, super excited. You know, when Dr. Maddox calls uh, and asks you, you obviously don't say no, and he assigns you a topic. And this one just happens to be very near and dear to my heart because the first paper I ever wrote was on contrast nephropathy really? I trauma okay. patients. Yeah, back in 2012. And so in January, a tweet came out from JTAX, and it was a little infographic visual abstract of that paper. Sure. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you know a thing or two. Let's yeah. start with the case to kind sure. of highlight our highlight what we're talking about here. Love it. You have a 64-year-old uh, woman with atrial fibrillation not on anticoagulation. Insulin-dependent diabetes and chronic kidney disease. Her baseline creatinine is 1.5. She presents to the ED with tachycardia. She has severe abdominal pain, white counts 20, and lactate is 6. Um, she gets a little resuscitation. You, you feel clinically she looks a bit better. And the ED is asking you, do you want to get a CT scan with or without contrast? So my first question for you is contrast nephropathy or contrast AKI, depending on what the what you want to call it these days, is it real? So, yes, it's real. I, I don't know that the term contrast-induced AKI is in vogue anymore. These days, it's really kind of shifted more towards a contrast-associated AKI. And I think the KDIGO group has defined that pretty clearly based on changes in serum creatinine versus changes in urine output. But it's interesting, you know, all the original studies that date back more than 70 years that looked at the association between contrast and the development of renal failure, because mm-hmm. we didn't have AKI back in the 50s when they were doing all these IVPs, um, we were using many different contrast agents back then, high osmolar, high volumes. We didn't know what it was about the contrast that was causing problems. And in 2022, it's just not something I worry about. And in this particular case, what are we concerned about? We think this woman might have mesenteric ischemia mm-hmm. 
or ischemic bowel. In trauma patients, we worry that they're bleeding. The only way you're going to get any reasonable resolution and a good look is with a contrast-enhanced CT, which I would definitely do in this particular case. And so we're going to come back to that in terms of the take-home points about getting the right scan for the right patient, because that's that's what's the most important thing. But you mentioned isoosmolar contrast or hypoosmolar contrast as being the contrast of 2022, right? This is not the same as these older papers. And so... There have been actually numerous, right, recent papers, retrospective, mostly propensity match type uh, studies and meta-analyses that have yeah. shown that there's not necessarily any detection of, uh, of contrast, uh, dye administration, and at the you know uh, temporarily increasing creatinine. Um, and these are some of these are pretty good studies, right? Oh, absolutely. And again, it crosses so many different specialties. So you can look at the cardiology and the angiography literature. You can look at the IR, or you can just look at the nephrology literature where they do have patients like this one, where there is a known pre-existing history of chronic renal insufficiency. Or the trauma patient populations where there's been a, a little bit more of a divide and uh, differing conclusions. But time and time again, uh, study after study and meta-analyses demonstrate that even if there is a slight increase in the creatinine, Mm -hmm. there are so many other risk factors that can explain that, whether that's sepsis, hypotension, pre-existing comorbidities, uh, the types of fluids we're using to resuscitate patients. So to chalk it all up to just the contrast I think is a bit of a stretch. And truly, I mean, if you really, if this is a topic you start diving into, this is where confounding bias, right, when it comes to study uh, creation and attribution to, to results is like, this is like the definition of confounding bias, right? Yes, you have a CT scan done. Yes, you have an AKI. Is it the con- contrast? Right. And, and it's a kind of a case study in that. And you can see a lot of uh, great, uh, even outside of just the literature, some great posts um, on different educational websites that, that kind of spell that out for us. And I thought there was one study I want to mention uh, that looked at creatinine changes in patients who had received both a contrasted CT scan and a non-contrasted yeah. CT scan at different points in time. Right. And uh, uh, changes in creatinine following both scans were actually the same. Right. And yeah. even bigger studies that look at the averages of these, creatinine can go up. But also it can go down, too, which is, which is fascinating. Yeah, like you said, there's so much confounding bias as well as indication bias. And I love this term, renalism. Yes. I don't know who came up with that term. I first came across it uh, by Joel Toff, yeah. uh, the salt whisperer, kidney boy on Twitter, and love his content. How do you define and renalism? Renalism is just you know avoiding performing indicated or necessary studies that involve contrast for fear of worsening kidney function. And so I just, you know, again, like we talked about the bleeding trauma patient, the patient with a potential intra-abdominal catastrophe, whether that's due to sepsis or not, if you need to do that study, do the study. Right. And I think it was, if I remember correctly, when it was Palm Crit, Josh Farkas's post on this, where you know, he talks about all the excitement that goes into talking about this, kind of ad nauseum. <laughs> but then th- and you think about all these other bona fide nephrotoxic drugs that I'm, you know, including myself, I'm, you know, you're doing, you're ordering that Toradol, you're ordering the vancomycin, you're, you're getting your ACE and ARBs back on, you know, things that are, that are nephrotoxic and, and, and in certain circumstances, clinically relevant nephrotoxicity. Uh, right. and, and we don't kind of give a blink an eye at that and yet here we are with the patient and this is real life this happens all the time this patient we described is sick 
they need a CT with IV exactly. contrast. And, and how many times have you been called where you get that scan and it's not contrasted and you're looking at the thing it's, going, well, send it back to the scanner. Yeah, it's a blurogram. And it's like, man, is that frustrating when someone gets <laughs> radiated again? So Exactly. All right. Um, any, any take-home points or, or, or any other thoughts? You know, honestly, Patrick, I think the big thing is um, if you believe that a contrast enhanced scan is indicated, just do it. Mm-hmm. If you have time, it's non-acute. I think there is reasonable evidence out there that uh, initiation of a simple isotonic saline infusion. Mm -hmm. And again, the the exact dose, the exact duration, pre- and post-contrast administration, I think is up for debate. But the whole point is try to make your patient as much as possible euvolemic Mm -hmm. if they're already in a hypovolemic state. And just be cautious because many of these patients are, are brittle and frail, and we don't want to push them into volume over. Yeah, and remind us, are there any differences in terms of the, the, these uh, isotonic fluids studied? Yeah, zero. Right. I think one of the best studies to date, Preserve, uh, looking at things like the use of N-acetylcysteine together with isotonic sodium bicarb versus isotonic saline, demonstrates no benefit. So stick with the simple, cheap stuff that's readily available. Right on. And uh, again, if you're listening to this episode and you actually like what we're talking about, especially when it comes to trauma and acute care surgery, remember, trauma ICU rounds, look it up, listen, leave some fantastic reviews for Dr. Kim, and we'll have him back on soon. Appreciate you, Dr. Georgioff. I'm joined now by Dr. Ali Salim, who is Division Chief of Trauma, Burns, and Surgical Critical Care at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Professor of Surgery at Harvard Medical School. Good to have you on. Great to be here. And uh, you talked, uh, I like the title. Uh, the title of your talk was Be a Quitter, Stop Low-Value Practices in the ICU. That's right. And, and I found it fascinating. I really enjoyed yeah. it. We're going to start with a case so that we can highlight some of the key points from your talk. So you are the insurgical intensivist coming on to service for the week, and you got your cup of coffee in front of you, you're checking out the list early in the morning before a round start that day, and you cannot help but notice that there are some things going on that, that just the word low yield just comes yeah. to your mind, uh, wasteful even. You notice that every single patient has labs and a morning x-ray. Uh, one hemodynamically stable non-cardiac patient received a unit of blood when their hemoglobin was 7.4. That happened last night. And two of your vented patients uh, have not yet undergone spontaneous awakening or breathing trials when you think otherwise yeah. that would be indicated. And lastly, you got a patient with, uh, without signs or symptoms of pneumonia, negative cultures there on cefepime for treatment. So we got a lot of fantastic, uh, a, lot, a, lot, yeah. a lot of things yeah. to work on here. Now, yeah. I'm going to start with the definition and let you get at it. In your talk, you define low-value care uh, as services that provide little or no benefit to patients, have potential to cause harm or incur unnecessary cost to patients, and that this could account for up to 30% of total health care spending. Yeah. What do you have to say about that? It's That's pretty it's wild. wild. Yeah, yeah, it it's really is. Wild. And, and the the problem is is that a lot of the low value care are things that we've been doing routinely for so long, yeah. you know. And I think we just don't realize that they're not actually providing any benefit for our patients. Right. And a know? lot of times it's the easy thing to do, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the Critical Care Society's Collaborative, which is a group of, of a bunch of critical care organizations, yeah. then yeah. later the Society of Critical Care Medicine on its own yeah. identified areas of low-value care. They, I think they started with five, right, and then identified right. another five. So what are some of those, and yeah. how do those apply to this circumstance and how you manage your ICU? Yeah, care? absolutely. So it was actually the Choosing Wisely campaign, right. which was 
basically the, um, I think it was the uh, Board of Medicine who tasked a lot of the societies to just identify at least five things that are of low value that can sort of be examined and maybe gotten rid of, really, just to um, get rid of some low-value care. So the initial five was basically stop getting routine tests like uh, on a regular interval, like daily labs or daily x-rays. Mm-hmm. Um, basically about transfusion, you know, using the TRIC trial from 1999, they said basically you don't need to transfuse a hemodynamically stable patient with a hemoglobin of seven. Sure. Um, they talked about TPN. Basically, there's really no value in giving someone TPN within the first seven days in an ICU course if they're well-nourished. Mm-hmm. Or um, They talked about doing spontaneous uh, awakening trials in people who are in sedation, trying to minimize the can amount you, of sedation. Can you just detour for one quick second yeah. there? Can you remind the value uh, for all the listeners of spontaneous awakening and breathing trials? Yeah, so the idea, this is basically to... Um, it's been shown that by doing that, you can get people um, extubated a lot quicker. Right. So the patients who are on, on ventilators often get a lot of sedation. So the idea is sort of minimize the sedation and at least once a day turn the sedation off, as long as it's safe, and give the uh, patient a spontaneous breathing trial and basically see if you can get them ready for extubation. With the idea that, A, you may not need as much sedation or no sedation, and B, that they may be able to get the They may not need run. to be on the vent, mm-hmm. right. Okay. Then I think the last one before I cut you before yeah. I cut you off was uh, don't continue life support or ongoing in you know care that yeah, any patients I, who either absolutely. don't want it or is not indicated. Absolutely. I think the key is just getting family involved and having goals of care discussions very early on and also on regular intervals too. Right. So so those are very very common sense uh, initiatives, things, yeah. uh, but they do require attention and work to achieve yeah. some of them. For yeah. instance, family discussions they yeah. they will yeah. eat your time up quick and it and and your time's valuable but it's important um and a lot of those a lot of those initial ones too i think have been fairly well incorporated into a lot of icus yeah right people know um that they need to get that sat done they know that the hemoglobin doesn't need to be you know uh, that they don't may not need to be transfused i think Um, everyone knows uh, and i was aware of all these things that you have to do but whether it's being done on a consistent basis i think that's where there's a lot of variability and i think that's where we can do a lot better right and then I'm going to blast through the next five and ask you then after that is how, how, how do you, how can our listeners, how can anyone yeah. managing an ICU or working in an ICU chip away at these things? So the, the, the Society of Critical Care Medicine's quote-unquote next five were no drains or catheters without clear indication, don't delay vent liberation, don't continue antibiotics without a clear indication, don't delay mobilization, which is huge, yeah. and don't provide care that is discordant with the patient's goals. So some of them were kind of yeah. repetitive too. So. Yeah. How, how do we go about chipping away at this? So I'll tell you how we've done it at our institution. You know, during our multidisciplinary rounds, we actually end rounds on a checklist, and we pretty much go through a checklist. Okay, this patient has lines. Does the patient need the line today? If not, then you get the line out. Foley, does the patient need the Foley today? You know, have we done a daily uh, awakening trial? Have we done a spontaneous breathing trial? Sure. All those. And then... When have we talked to the family? So that's all part of the checklist. And if you sort of go through the checklist, at least you're sort of um, addressing all of those key items. Is that checklist, how is that operationalized? Is it a piece of, is it a binder, a piece of paper? Is it 
physically next to the bedside? Does so? Is it the yeah. nurse's responsibility or the resident's responsibility to read it and, and, yeah. and check? Things? It's both. Okay. It's actually we actually have the nurses read the checklist, and it's incorporated in our electronic medical record too. Yeah, we actually that. create a note, and the nurse actually goes through the list. And it's something that we do at the end of rounds. So unless if if unless you're not doing it actively, it's not going to happen. Right. Yeah. Right. And you said it goes into the note. Is that a dot phrase that gets? It's a dot phrase. Yes. That covers all those. Yep. Yes or no? Are these yep. things happening? Yes. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. That that's critical. I know uh, at the University of Michigan where I did my my critical care fellowship, we had something very similar, and and people kind of groan. I know. You know, oh, we do this, but but like you said, if it's not done, then it won't. It exactly. will be forgotten. Least, exactly. These, these little things which make we said it make perfect sense, but in practice, those things start to drift yeah. away. Um, any other new or innovative things that you've seen uh, uh, people doing um, uh, to, again, to, to try to decrease the, this low-yield care? You know, they talk about a lot of different things in terms of implementation. You know, it's so hard. It's, everyone knows that these things need to be done, but it's so hard to change a culture and have everyone do it. So I think incorporating it into an electronic medical record, having decision support basically tell you that you don't need to do this. Having, um, I think, feedback they talk about is, you know, you can literally, you know, um, almost grade it, uh, physicians in terms of compliance with certain right. things. You know, you can kind of survey the charts to see, and then you can give them that feedback and say, hey, you sort of forgot to do this or you're not doing this on a regular basis. And, and how about nursing education? Because yeah. that, I think, probably for a lot of these things we're talking, you talk about a Foley and whatnot. Absolutely. They're, 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 the, they're the ones taking yeah. care of They're the yeah. ones actually caring for the patients. Yeah. And so a lot of times they're the ones that can, that can bring that up and, and be empowered to do so as part of that team. No, absolutely. Checklist. Absolutely. I think the, the big part is having the nurses actively participate in rounds, yeah. for sure. And when did you first start with the full list and or dot phrase? So the dot phrase actually started this past year. We've actually had a, a written checklist that we've used in the past. And that was, now we're actually measuring compliance of the checklist. And then, you know, the next step is to sort of look at outcomes from, you know, adhering to this checklist. Yeah. All right, fantastic. Is there anything else you want to you wanna add or say about the, uh, the topic? I know. I think that's about it. Just encourage all the listeners to make an uh, effort to attend this conference at some point. All right, I'm back with Dr. Jason Smith, endowed professor and director of the Division of General Surgery at the University of Louisville. And you shared uh, a bunch of information with us here at the Maddox Conference on DPR, or direct peritoneal resuscitation. Uh, Soothing the Savage Abdomen was the official title, which always is a bit catchy. And uh, we're going to start with a case. Okay. And then I want to hear what you have to say about DPR. So a 28-year-old male is shot in the abdomen. This results in injury to the liver, the IVC, and the transverse colon. He's taken to the OR immediately. There, bleeding is controlled, but only after large volume of blood loss. A hemicolectomy without anastomosis is performed, and the abdomen is thoroughly irrigated, and you're going to leave the abdomen open and get to the ICU. Okay. Uh, is this patient a good candidate for DPR is the main question. But mm-hmm. before you, you, you mentioned that, for folks who don't know what this is, let's talk about what it is first, <laughs> and then let's answer if they're a good candidate. Always a good place to start. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so d- DPR, direct peritoneal resuscitation, um, it's basically lavaging the abdomen with a hypertonic, you know, dialysate following, you know, damage control surgery. And we do that for a couple of reasons. Um, 
from our standpoint, you know, it, it helps reduce the, the bio burden and sometimes it helps get rid of, uh, of the things in the abdomen, but it also helps control the edema. Uh, particularly when you're talking about things like, uh, you know, emergency general surgery, where we're still using crystalloids to resuscitate patients and things like that. So from our standpoint, it's, it's just lavaging the abdomen, and it's simple to do. I think, you know, that's the one thing I remind people is that all you need to do is put in a drain and put the drain at the base of the mesentery when you're done. You're just going to instill fluid through that and let it run up through the vac dressing and be suctioned off by whatever vac dressing you want to use. So simple as that. Yeah. And, and the solution, and we'll talk, I'm sure we'll talk about this more in a minute, but what solution are you using? What's in it? Yeah, so we use a glucose-based peritoneal dialysis solution. Uh, it's 2.5%, uh, and they come in different strengths when you look at peritoneal dialysis solution. Uh, if you use things much stronger than about 2.5%, um, you will peritoneal dialysize the patients. And so they're in, you don't want to be doing that during initial operations. And so that's one of the reasons you use a little less concentrated. And so it comes in four and five and 6%. So it's like PD light. Exactly. And this is the ones that they always say, this is a solution they use for babies. If you actually are, have a child uh, that's in the NICU, they may be getting peritoneal dialysis. And so it's around, it's usually easy to get. It's not running out like many other peritoneal dialysis solutions are right now. And you can use it without worrying about pulling too much fluid out of the vasculature. All right, so we got this guy shot in the abdomen, bleeding controlled, big blood loss, did a hemicolectomy. You're not going to put it together right now. You put your single drain in mm-hmm. the gutter. You have your app there in place. That's mm-hmm. all you need, right? You can get your your, uh, your PD solution. So you bring it back to the ICU, though, and you got uh, people scratching their head going, what, do you, what is this? Right. Why, why? I guess not what is it, but why? Yeah, and I think... So I will tell you that that's always been the biggest question. And the first few times we did it, you know, in the ICU, the biggest question is the nurses are like, what are you doing? Why are we doing change, this? Change is scary. It's, yeah. uh, it's you know, I, I am not hooking up this pump to this thing and, and what have you. But what, I, what you find is, is that once you explain it, it's simple, but there's also a lot of, of physiology. Um, there's a lot of changes within the visceral blood flow that can possibly affect inflammation and long-term outcomes following damage control surgery. So there's a lot more behind this and what it may or may not do. But the easiest thing I remind people is we're just washing out the abdomen. That's all I need to, uh, that's all I need people to understand during the first couple of days of doing this. And in the simplest terms, that makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Because you also, you, you go back and, you know, especially after a very contaminated case, sure. you know what it looks like in 24, 48 hours, disgusting, you're still cleaning and washing it out. So that alone makes sense. But in your animal studies, and specifically you talk about there's improved hepatic blood flow, decreased tissue necrosis, decreased of, uh, damage associated, or damps, dam- mm-hmm. damage associated with their proteins. And even in these animal studies, improved mortality. So in humans, what, what kind of clinical outcomes are you looking at or reporting on now? I know, mm-hmm. you know, there's ongoing, lots of ongoing work from your group. Yeah, so we've seen a reduction in the overall abscess formation in the abdomen following, you know, doing this for a little while. And that led to decreased instrumentation, decreased procedures, decreased trips to the operating room. Mm-hmm. You've also seen them in the ICU less often um, because you're not leaving them with an open abdomen longer. You get them closed sooner. You get them off the vent sooner. And when we took another study we did and looked at emergency general surgery, what you found were things like their SOFA score at 24 hours improved in the DPR group compared to the conventional resuscitation group. So something that you're doing is actually decreasing 
that inflammatory process somewhere. And it seems to make sense. When we've looked at the animals, you've changed what's coming out of the lymph. And if you assume that all the, the nastiness that's being generated by that necrotic and, and ischemic bowel, you know, kind of dumping itself into your lungs and dumping itself into your, your systemic circulation, you kind of wash a lot of that out mm-hmm. and you keep it from forming. And so you don't have as robust an activation of that inflammatory profile. Is this, is this similar uh, yeah, you know, not the same, but mm-hmm. similar to the I thought or the idea that, especially in patients who are in septic shock, that you're getting rid of some of these bad humors with maybe like CRT, <laughs> and sure. there even you know there's even been a specific immunogenic like filters designed. And all. Is this the same idea in the simplest of terms? Do you think that you're getting rid of some of that badness by doing this? And that's I do. why I do, and I think that's one of the things that, for from our standpoint, one of the the further ways that we're trying to evaluate this is to look at that very question. I do think we're probably getting you know, and washing out the, the bad humors. Um, I don't think it's one thing, and that's what I always remind people, is I think what we're trying to do is we're, we're, we're reducing the inflammation a little bit. We're getting rid of some of those damps that may form following, you know, ischemic bowel or mm-hmm. ischemia reperfusion. You know, you're increasing blood flow and stopping a lot of, you know, cellular swelling so that when I do restore blood flow, I may keep those microvascular beds open. So it's a lot of little things that are going to add up to something big, but it's not a magic bullet. It mm-hmm. just it changes the physiology of the viscera. Can you rattle off what type of injuries or surgeries were done on the last few patients mm-hmm. you did at Louisville in terms of using this? Yeah. So the, you, you nailed a couple of them already. So the biggest one we had was liver injuries. And if I think about today, the things that get packed most of the time are things like liver injuries mm-hmm. or uh, where you've got a, a really bad ischemic bowel and a major vascular injury where you're going to bring that back and take a look a second time. Mm-hmm. We've packed abdomens and done this. That's a, that's a question I get all the time. Sure. If I've packed a bunch of stuff in, in the liver, is this going to you know disrupt those packs? And the answer is no. It's not really going to disrupt those packs. We didn't see any increased blood utilization in the DPR patients versus the conventional patients. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, a lot of everything. And, and it's the ones that we are seeing now are typically the, the, the most sick because that's really what we're using damage control surgery on now we're gone away from you know every third person is not getting their abdomen closed to you know it's maybe once a month that you're going to have a real damage control surgery procedure and so those patients are the sickest and and we're using it every day great and last question then if someone wanted to get this started at their institution there's a couple different things Um, estes the european uh, trauma society they they put out a nice webinar that they diagrammed and did some of the stuff and, and and correlated a lot of that that i had put together before there's a couple YouTube videos out there about folks that have, have gone through the papers or have talked to me and things like that. Um, and you can also go back and look at some of our other papers where we describe it. It's yeah. as simple as a pump, a drain, and a vac. And so it's not, you know, keep simple things simple. That's what I try to tell some people. Some of the best solutions are the simplest ah, ones. The so. best solutions are always the simple ones. Well, that's fantastic. Thanks for uh, joining us today. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. This is great. I love this podcast. I love this show. And it's, it's actually fantastic to be a part of it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Okay, I'm here with Dr. Andre Campbell, who's professor and vice chair of surgery at UCSF in San Francisco. Also a legend in trauma surgery and a legend here at the Maddox Conference. He's been a, a long-standing uh, contributor. Dr. Campbell gave numerous talks, but he also moderated a session called Focus on Prophylaxis 2022. that looked at chemoprophylaxis to prevent thromboembolism in, in trauma patients. Now, this is certainly an important topic and for good reason. That's because trauma patients are at high risk of DVT and PE. In fact, PE is one of the leading causes of inpatient death in trauma patients who have survived their initial injury. But if you take care of trauma patients, you also know just how challenging it can be to figure it all out. When is it safe to start Lovenox? What about that subdural hemorrhage or the ORF of the tibia that's coming up tomorrow? When can you restart it after surgery? What's the appropriate dose? Do you do it daily? Do you do it twice a day? Are you checking 10A levels? Will insurance cover the discharge? The list goes on and on. So to clarify some of this, uh, we are going to go through a few cases and pick Dr. Campbell's brain. Let's start with the first. A 72-year-old female who is not on blood thinner suffers a ground-level fall with loss of consciousness. CT scan shows a 3-millimeter unilateral subdural hemorrhage without shift. GCS is 15. Dr. Campbell, assuming the patient's exam remains unchanged, when should VTE prophylaxis, specifically low molecular weight heparin, be initiated. Well, first of all, it's been a long struggle to have our neurosurgery colleagues to first recognize that having a DVT is something that's serious that happens after a head injury. They have always been concerned about rebleeding afterwards. The TQIP guidelines now have moved into the realm where you can start it usually within 24 to 48 hours in someone like this. Uh, this is sort of something that uh, has been discussed. Now, for a long time, neurosurgeons wouldn't have let us start it for two weeks. Right. Uh, but we really kept pounding them, pounding them, pounding them. And finally, they, they recognized that DVT has increased. It's a real problem for head injury patients, and we need to, to start initiate treatment as soon as it's safe and make sure they don't re-bleed. So 24 to 48 hours in this patient, right? Yes. Okay. Assuming they don't evolve. That's right. Because if their, their exam evolves, it gets bigger, or they you know, blow a pupil, or, they, or their mental status changes. This person has a normal mental status, is communicative, is non-focal. And that's a, that is a, that's a special category. Right. All right. Same patient, right? This is a 72-year-old woman, no blood thinners, mechanical ground-level fall, loss of consciousness, except now she has a 2.5-centimeter intraventricular hemorrhage. It's... it's it's uglier on the CT scan. Assuming this patient's exam remains unchanged, when should prophylaxis be initiated? Well, this one is bigger. You know, we had a whole session on this and discussing, you know, what's safe. I mean, the, the window is 24, 72 hours and something like this because you want to make sure that, that the patient's the exam doesn't change, the, the blood in the brain doesn't get worse because this actually is pretty sizable. This Remember, the brain is a fixed it's fixed by the skull, and that you don't want to have something that gets bigger, gets bigger, it bleeds, then you have a, you have a negative outcome, which you don't want to have right. with that. Now, we had a, within the session, not just for the TBI, but with solid organ we're going to talk about too, the, the modified burn Norwood criteria were, were mentioned. And these are criteria that offer guidance and stratify patients into risk in terms of when you can start this DVT prophylaxis. And there's an important caveat for the TBI patients, though, right, in terms of 
repeat CT scan. That's right. They have to have a repeat CT scan because you don't want it to get worse. If it gets worse, then you can't start it. And that's right. really what it, that's really, you know, what it is. It sort of has to be stable with no significant change. Now, at San Francisco General Hospital, what prompts a repeat CT scan? Well, we, we probably over-radiate people, but usually what will happen is if somebody comes in with a head injury and there's blood in their brain, then we'll repeat it in six hours see what happens if it's if it's the same then you know then it really depends on their clinical exam sure. but if it gets bigger then they'll have to get another scan so, right but we have very aggressive neurosurgeons Our neurosurgeons are probably unlike neurosurgeons in other places because they're very involved in the care of the, the patients right they're very involved they round every day they communicate with us and it's really an ideal partner in terms of the care of these patients that is let's move on to solid organ injury. So we have a 34-year-old male who's involved in a high-speed MVC. He suffers a grade 3 splenic laceration without extravasation. Uh, so this patient gets admitted to San Francisco General Hospital on the trauma service. When do, when do you start prophylaxis on them? Well, this is, really depends if they have other injuries or it's an isolated uh, spleen. Usually the, the spleens that are 1 to 3s, you know, usually will wait to make sure that they're not bleeding about 24 hours, and then they could start at that time. If, you know, the fours and fives are the ones that are really the gnarly ones, and those are the ones that they can really, they can bleed because they have pseudonatisms, the spleen is ruptured, and they can actually end up getting surgery, so we don't want to complicate things. So if you have a grade four, pretty ugly looking, no extrav, they're admitted for serial exams, serial hemoglobin checks, when do you, and everything goes well when yeah, you start yeah. well, prophylaxis yeah. I would say that I would wait for that. I would wait for maybe a couple of days, mm-hmm. and we talk about re-imaging. That was my next question. Know, that kind of thing. You know, they've actually done studies initially about re-imaging, and and unless somebody is unstable, in general, we've not re-imaged, right? But the fours and fives are more complicated because the fours and fives can have pseudoaneurysms. They could progress. So we actually will tend to re-image those those folks within three or four days. So you could probably start it you know, 24 to 48 hours after assuming they're not bleeding. But if they have a pseudoaneurysm, then you you have to to wait. Because sometimes they get embolized. You know, sometimes they'll progress and they'll have to go to surgery. So what if that same grade 4 patient comes in, they have extravasation, and they get embolized? What then? Well, then um, I think, again, it's like how stable are they? Did they get any blood? Did not get any blood? That kind of thing. Once they stabilize for a period of, I would say, 24 to 48 hours, then we will start it. We try to do it earlier, right, uh, with that. But they got to be rock stable because the last thing you want to do is give them something that, uh, you know, anticoagulate them if they're bleeding. That's right. And, and, and literature uh, uh, really defines uh, early as 48 hours, right? Yeah. That's, that's the cutoff that we're talking about here. So if you're within that window, you're helping to reduce the risk of DVT uh, without increasing uh, a bleeding, that's at least correct. in these lower-grade uh, injuries. That's correct. The lower grades are easy. The higher grades are the one that we sweat around. Yeah, for good reason. Sometimes yeah. those spleens can act a little right. wily, right, after the fact. All right, any, any take-home points uh, from, from this session? We covered a lot more, obviously, here at the Magnus Conference, uh, but anything that you want uh, the listeners to hear? Well, I think the main thing I th- for your listeners is that DVT is a real thing you know, at our place and many others that where folks have studied it. Increased incidence in trauma patients are hypercoagulable, and starting anticoagulation as soon as it is safe is important and following guidelines in your hospital. But you also, the other thing we did talk about is after orthopedic injuries, we kind of fight a little bit with our orthopods mm-hmm. about starting and stopping. We will actually start it on time, everything will be fine, but what will happen is they'll go to the OR, to get stopped, get started again, and those people are at increased risk. So we are still working through the, the kinks of making sure they get restarted and right. back on their back on anticoagulation. Aren't we all? Possible. 
Yeah, uh, but as, as trauma surgeons, as a quarterback of the team taking care of these patients, that's part of the part of the process, that's right? True. Working with your consultants and that ensuring these patients get the best care they can. That's so. absolutely correct. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on. Well, thank and I you appreciate so much. you taking the time. Thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate that. All right, I have with me now Dr. Megan Lewis. She is Assistant Professor of Clinical Surgery and Director of the Surgical ICU at L.A. County USC Medical Center. Pleasure to have you on. Great. Thanks for having me. And you gave multiple talks, but one was uh, looking at spinal cord injury and evidence-based MAP goals. And we were just talking before we pressed record here about how, at least in my, my group, sometimes I have neurosurgeons wanting to drive the pressures up and others don't. And so it's an area of controversy, uh, without a doubt, that's uh, a good topic to cover. Yes, for sure. This is an area where there's a paucity of high-level uh, literature to guide us. And so to start, we'll do a case, and then we'll use that case to highlight some of the key points from your talks. So we have a 42-year-old female who presents as a trauma one following a high-speed motor vehicle crash. The primary survey is unremarkable. Secondary survey is notable for complete paralysis from the shoulders down. Um, her heart rate is 45. Blood pressure is 100 over 60. That's a map of 73, exactly. Pan CT scan demonstrates an unstable fracture at C4 and 5 with obvious cord injury. The patient is electively intubated, and after returning from the CT scanner, they're admitted to the ICU. And blood pressure remains 100 over 60, and the nurse asks if you'd like to start vasopressors. So before we, you answer this question, I think we should put some of this in context because we, we know we want to avoid a frank hypotension, um, and we know we need to treat neurogenic shocks for people with high cord injuries. And so the controversy here that we're trying to get to the bottom of is whether or not artificially uh, pushing blood pressure to higher than normal, A, actually improves spinal cord perfusion, and then B, whether that improves outcomes in patients with spinal cord injury. Where do you start? There's a lot to talk about. Sure. So anytime um, we have a patient with neurologic trauma, um, we always want to think about sort of the two components, which are primary and secondary injury. And of course, the primary injury is the direct damage uh, to the brain or spinal cord as a result of the traumatic event itself. Um, But the secondary injury is really um, what results from ischemia, um, poor perfusion to the brain or spinal cord after the injury. And um, this leads to um, worsened insult and it impairs neurologic recovery. So whenever we're taking care of these patients, what we're thinking about is optimizing flow to the brain or spinal cord. Well, that's a difficult thing to do because clinically we don't really measure blood flow to the brain or spinal cord. Um, And a lot of what we do in the ICU is use pressures as a surrogate Mm -hmm. for flow. Um, The other thing that we see in neurologic issue is some variable uh, loss of autoregulation, and uh, this makes perfusion to the brain or spinal cord become more dependent on these systemic arterial blood pressures. Is the spinal cord the same as the brain? Um, yes and no. They, they act a little bit differently. Um, I think when we're talking about um, the brain, what becomes most important is this uh, Monroe Kelly doctrine, and that is that um, the skull is a fixed space, and uh, we have to control the intracranial pressures. Right. Um, so a little bit different there. So by using vasopressors, do you think that we're simply avoiding hypotension? Is that a good reason to use them, or is there data to support driving maps as high as 85 or 90 because I think it's the Congress of Neurologic Surgeons 
right, last updated in 2013, so a, a, a while ago, that recommends maps of 85 for a week, right? Right. So those recommendations, as you say, aren't new, and they're based on really poor evidence. Um, some studies from the 1990s, um, two of which were retrospective, um, and one of which was prospective, but all involved sort of bundles of care for mm-hmm. spinal cord injury. So you really can't isolate the effect of this um, map augmentation, as we call it, when you when you um, push those maps higher than is physiologic, physiologically normal. Um, so, so those recommendations, though we have them, are based on low-level evidence. Sure. And what's the, you mentioned the Temple trial. Yes. What is that? Uh, so this is a multi-center uh, randomized trial that we're participating in right now, and that's comparing um, these two methods, looking at um, conventional maps of 65 to 70 in patients who've had spinal cord injury, and, and comparing that to these augmented maps um, that are recommended by the Congress of Neurological Surgeons. So hopefully we'll have some prospective data to help guide us in the future. Now, have you been able to enroll uh, pretty easily in that trial? Or I guess I shouldn't say easily, but have you been able to enroll in that trial? Um, yeah, at LA County USC, we've been enrolled a few patients, um, and uh, it's, it's always difficult to enroll in uh, prospective trials like it this is, in trauma. Yeah. So. yeah, but that's that's the appropriate trial, right, uh, in terms of trial design and patients study to maybe give us some more information to say this is uh, data-driven or not. Uh, if you are going to go ahead and, and push that, that blood pressure, that map up, is there one vasopressor that's superior to another in, in this patient population? Sure, and there's been um, a few studies looking at that too, um, and some of the studies have really shown no difference in one vasopressor or the other, but a couple studies have shown that um, complications are higher with dopamine, um, which was historically a, a popular choice, um, but we certainly see more dysrhythmias, especially in elderly patients, when we choose dopamine. And an interesting study um, compared um, dopamine and norepinephrine um, in, in a small population of patients, but um, even so norepinephrine uh, showed uh, decreased intrathecal pressure, and uh, as a result of that, you, say, you see increased spinal cord perfusion pressure, and uh, that would be optimal um, because, again, what we're really trying to do is improve blood flow to the spinal cord. Um, and so I think uh, when you have to choose, I would choose norepinephrine. Yeah, that's an interesting finding. Do you have any physiologic explanation for why that might have been the case, that intrathecal pressure went down in, in the norepinephrine group? Um, yeah, you know, um, nothing, nothing comes to mind immediately, right, but all, obviously all of the vasopressors act a little bit differently in terms of uh, their physiologic receptors. So it's something that we, we need to look further into for sure. Okay, so if we're going back to our patient, uh, the nurse is, is, is waiting for your answer. They want to know, are you going to, uh, in your unit, uh, for this specific patient, going to increase their blood pressure to a map of 85? Yeah, so um, I, I think, as you already alluded to, the first and most important thing that we always want to do um, in these um, trauma patients is to make sure that um, there's no bleeding, that we've controlled the source of bleeding, and that the patient is euvolemic. Um, I think in, in mm-hmm. all ICU, we, we strive for that. And if both of those things are true, then um, I I think that my tendency would be to follow the guidelines and uh, go ahead and initiate low-dose norepinephrine. And uh, if we found that we had to titrate the norepinephrine up to sort of abnormally high levels, um, and I would start to worry a little bit more about the complications that we can see from vasopressors, um, then I would stop chasing uh, MAPS at that point. Because as you said before, um, just because we increase the pressure doesn't necessarily mean we increase the flow, because um, vasopressors can constrict collaterals, um, and then right. we might actually see less blood flow. So then what do you do in, in this patient who, let's say they undergo 
unremarkable fixation, and they're doing really well. What happens when it's day like four or five, and they do not need to be in your ICU, but they're still on that norepinephrine infusion? Yeah. Are they, are they, do they stay put for another couple of days to meet that seven-day mark? Um, no, I don't think so at all. I think um, obviously the the recommendations that we have use the use that time period of seven days. But when you look at even some of the individual studies, some of the studies that have validated those guidelines since then, they used a period of either seventy two hours or until until the patient was done. Right. With their so seven season. days is not the be all end all, right? Probably a bit excessive. Okay, that's fantastic. <laughs> Thank you very much for being Thank on. You. All right, I'm back with Dr. Dimitriades, Professor of Surgery and Director of Acute Care Surgery at USC Medical Center at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. He is a legend in the trauma community and a prolific producer of high-quality and really clinically impactful uh, research papers. Um, and his talk was, uh, incision and exposure choices can lead to complications and hemorrhage control. So this is top tips of the trade from Dr. Dimitriades. Let's start with... A really important one, emergency crike. What kind of tips and tricks do you have for our listeners on, on getting yeah. that tube in quick? Right. Uh, emergency crike is the most dramatic procedure in surgery. You have somebody uh, dying, hypoxic, and you try to establish a surgical airway. It's very common that you do the wrong incision. And the common mistake is that you go very low, then you go to the thyroid isthmus, which causes a lot of bleeding, mm-hmm. or you go high in the thyroid space, which is the wrong thing. The useful tip is you, you use the trick of the palm. You place the tip of the small finger in the suprasternal notch, mm-hmm. and where the tip of the index finger touches the neck, you do your incision. This is a cricothyroid. So space. I'm doing this right now, and it's perfect. I can feel my own neck. I can feel my own anatomy, and it lines up very well. Right, and it applies to uh, thick neck, uh, edematous neck, swollen neck. It's a very mm-hmm. useful trick. What about vertical versus horizontal? Okay, if you are an experienced surgeon and the patient has a short, thin neck, it doesn't matter. But if you have not done a lot of these procedures or the patient has a thick neck, go always vertically. Yeah, enlarge, right? Enlarge. Yeah. If you do a transverse incision, there is a risk of cutting the arterial jugulars. You get into a lot of bleeding, and then there is a high probability of losing the airway. Okay. What if I have an injury to D3 or D4? What's the best way to expose that, a penetrating injury to the duodenum? Yes, sir. Okay. With the Cochrane maneuver, uh, you can easily mobilize the first, second, and proximal third part of the duodenum. However, it's risky to try to identify the distal third or the fourth part of the duodenum because of the superior mesenteric vessels. There is a risk of cutting them, damaging them. So you need to do the catal brush maneuver, and most of the surgeons do not know how to do it. Critical, for not just for this exposure, but for so many other things, too. Yeah. All right. Iliac vessels. Uh, So you hear this talked about a lot about ligating the artery to get to the vein. And you mentioned something about this in your talk today. Can you expand on that a little bit? Right. Uh, The... Iliac veins are much more difficult to expose than the arteries because they are underneath and medial to the arteries. So some surgical textbooks say that, recommend that in order to improve the exposure of the vein, divide the artery. 
I think it's a crazy idea. You have a very sick patient, unstable patient. The last thing he needs is a transection of his uh, iliac artery. Our recommendation, my recommendation, is to put vessel loops around the iliac artery and retract it laterally. Right. And this is going to give you a good exposure of the underlying iliac vein. And it can withstand a fair bit of tension, right? When you pull, it's not going to come apart on you exactly. like the vein is. Now, what about a distal iliac vessel? Uh, how would you go about exposing a, okay. an injury there? Right. Uh, the, it's very difficult to expose the distal iliac vessels through a midline laparotomy. Mm-hmm. For these cases, I recommend uh, adding an oblique incision going all the way down uh, to the mid-iliac ligament, iliac space. And this gives you a perfect exposure of the distal iliac, external iliac, and the proximal femoral artery. Right. So don't be afraid to get, to get into the groin. Don't be afraid. Yeah. This is a tough one, aortic occlusion. So sometimes i found that uh, getting a supraciliac control of the aorta is easy in some folks and in some patients. It is really, really challenging. And you gave some excellent tips and tricks today. Can you share a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, You're right. In the thin patient, it's very easy. Sometimes in the obese patient, it can be quite tricky. And one needs to follow uh, the uh, usual uh, the following steps. Number one, you retract the media, the left lobe of the liver to the right. Next uh, step is to identify the esophagus and put a pernerous drain around it. And retract the esophagus to the left side. Underneath the esophagus, you are going to find uh, the aorta. And if the aorta cannot be seen very well, you can divide the esophageal foramen, the crude of the diaphragm, at 2 o'clock. At 2 o'clock, there are no vessels. Mm-hmm. So you can divide it fearlessly, and you can see even the distal thoracic aorta from there. And that's the first time I've actually heard of that, uh, the clock face, the 2 o'clock, uh, and that makes perfect sense. Let's cover one last one. We could pick your brain for, for, for hours here, but let's pick one last one. One topic that's been covered a, a lot at the Maddox meeting this year is, is pelvic fractures. We've had a couple different talks on it and cases even, expanding hematomas. Do you get into these things? What kind of thoughts do you have on, on the expanding pelvic hematoma? We did talk a little bit about iliacs already, but... Yeah, I have very strong thoughts on that. Uh, If you are in the abdomen and you see in front of you a big expanding hematoma, I would always explore it for many reasons. Uh, Number one, in about 11% of patients with severe pelvic fractures, there is an injury to the common or the external iliac vessels. So you want to see this injury and repair it. Uh, Number two, I, even if there is diffuse injury, I want to see where this diffuse injury is and apply one of the effective local hemostatic uh, agents. Mm-hmm. And the third reason, I can do the equivalent to the prophylactic internal iliac embolization. I put vessel loops and clips around both internal iliac arteries, mm-hmm. and then I pack. The next day, when I come back, I remove the clips, I remove the loops, and the internal iliacs open up. This is what we've been doing at USC for more than 20 years. And it's worked out just fine. We are very happy with that, yeah. Okay. Well, again, it's been a pleasure to have you on and uh, and to meet you in person. Uh, Thank you again.
All right, I've got the Dr. Eastman with me, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with your titles because these are fun. We were just talking about this. So trauma surgeon in Plano, Texas, senior medical officer of operations, U.S. Department of Homeland Security, which I just learned a little bit more about, fascinating, wide-ranging job, lieutenant and chief medical officer for the Dallas Police Department, and associate professor of surgery at USIS. So lots of titles, lots going on, and a fixture here at the Maddox Conference. So we're happy to have you on Behind the Knife, Dr. Eastman. And you talked about pre-hospital tourniquets, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So we're going to start off with a case, and then we'll use that to uh, bring out some of the key points from that talk. Great. And just before we get started, great to be back. Great to see the work you guys have done. Really appreciate the chance to come back and visit. We appreciate that. So you got a 22-year-old male. Uh, they're brought in as a trauma one. They were shot in the mid-right thigh approximately 25 minutes ago. Now, you had a, an intrepid neighbor who actually happens to be a high school principal who took the Stop the Bleed course. And he was the first to attend to the patient, and he placed the tourniquet above the injury. On arrival, the patient is hemodynamically normal. He has a weak pulse in the affected foot with the tourniquet in place. And you take the tourniquet down, uh, there's a small amount of venous bleeding. You get to an ABI, and that's actually normal. So this is not necessarily an uncommon scenario. Um, uh, this patient had an improperly uh, applied tourniquet, a venous tourniquet. Uh, but on the flip side, we could also be discussing a terrible injury in which that tourniquet was appropriately applied. You take the thing down and you've got arterial blood squirting all over. Um, and so that gets to the title of your talk, the good, the bad, and the ugly of, of, of tourniquets. So let's start with the, with the good. Yeah, good, perfect. So I would say this. You know, I think the characterization of that as an improperly applied, applied tourniquet is a tough one. I have a pretty tough standard. Look, it's not one of us out there. It's a high school principal. So first of all, good on that guy yeah. for jumping in it, putting a tourniquet on, and intervening when lots of people would have probably thrown their hands up and be like, hey, I'm out, not going to do it. Okay. And so I think this perfectly illustrates what we've struggled with all along, and particularly with Stop the Bleed and programs like it. And, and, and you know, the good is that you can take a high school principal and give him a little bit of training and make him reasonably effective at stopping hemorrhage and life-threatening hemorrhage at that. And that's what we all need because, look, let's be honest, I don't care if you're talking about law enforcement officers, surgeons, paramedics, whatever, we are likely not going to be at the point of wounding. And that's the point of time where it's most critical. And so the good about these devices is that they do save lives. And when applied early, before hemorrhagic shock sets in, You know, I always like to joke, and no offense to all the high school guys out there, but a high school kid interested in science can take one of these tourniquets and become as effective as you or I Mm -hmm. at the the point of wounding. And so that's the good part. You know, the bad part is, look, uh, in some studies, half of pre-hospital applied tourniquets are placed incorrectly or, you know, and I hate to use this word, or improperly applied. The wounding pattern is interpreted improperly to put you know, a tourniquet on. And we have purposely chosen, you know, we, the big, the global, we, not we, you and I, but Mm -hmm. we, the folks that, you know, sort of help to make these decisions have purposely chosen to cast a net widely. I'd much rather have some tourniquets that I have to take off and be like, "Mm, Hey man, good job. Didn't need it. Don't worry. Rather than people that bleed to death from completely preventable injuries. Is it dangerous to have an improperly applied tourniquet yeah. in the global, uh, yeah. you know, globally? Great, great question. I mean, look, I, you know, there's a small risk of a, of a neuropraxia afterwards. You know, there are always, uh, the, you know, the sort of 
overblown risk of one getting put on and getting forgotten about and things like that. I mean, I think those are overblown, but they do have complications. Now, the safety profile is pretty good. So if you're in an, in, an, in an area that has relatively short transport time to a place where somebody's going to get in to look at that extremity and see if it's needed, it's essentially a freebie, right? right. Put it on, forget about it, let them deal with it at the hospital. And that's why we've chosen to train you know, the nation's law enforcement officers to do this. And they're doing it right now. I presented some data in the talk that just finished that you know, we've seen the percentage of, of what flavor sort of tourniquet responder, whether it's a civilian, a law enforcement officer, EMS, that, cha- that flavor's changed. And cops are putting these on all over the country, and I'm proud of that right now. Right. But you know, the ugly is we, we still have not nailed down the optimal training regimen, and we don't know the best way uh, to, to deploy these in the most effective manner. Because, look, there's still a cost, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, we say... You should never have to go farther than finding the AED to find a tourniquet. I think the ugly part of this right now is that the college has done yeoman's work on Stop the Bleed uh, campaign. They've trained in, you know, in a campaign that's not very old. They've trained you know, almost 2 million people. And, and so I think that's a good thing. But then the, the natural, you know, sort of a guy that's aggressive and wants to get this done says, hey, look, I mean, that's great, 2 million, but that leaves only about, you know, 300 million people to go so right. so so what's so what is the future there's challenges so what's what's the future of this and how do you see this being more successful than it already is because again like you mentioned that stop the bleed campaign it was it's fantastic yeah i think look here's what has to happen we we have to as as academic trauma surgeons and emergency physicians and you know the sort of house of hemorrhage control if there is such a thing I like that. we have to come together and uh we have to come together and and really think differently about how we train folks to use these things, where we put them, and how we get them much more widely distributed. Because, you know, we are here we are sitting in Las Vegas, site of one of the biggest mass shooting, the biggest mass shooting in America with other associated casualties. And we still not haven't necessarily applied all the lessons to that from that day uh, nationwide. And, and that's the problem. we got to get to that point. And what do you say for a patient like this when that tourniquet is, is not appropriately applied? What do you tell that EMS provider? Uh, do, you, do you counsel them at all? Or you? Yeah, again, like, so I think you've got to be really careful with your words and your definitions because yeah. it, for him, for that EMS provider, it is appropriately applied, sure. right? Sees gunshot wound, sees bleeding, applies tourniquet, goes to hospital. Like, we make it that simple for a reason because you're going to save people like that. From his standpoint, he did exactly the right thing. And it's not his job to be able to determine who needs it and who doesn't. The problem is, the farther away you get from definitive care, and we have plenty of places in the United States where transport times are long, that equation gets a little bit more complicated. Right. To your point, the words do matter in, appro- in approaching that individual uh, thoughtfully and, and showing them a few tips or tricks, it, you know, goes a long way. So, And I think what's most important, man, is, and look, I'm a, you know, I, I'm a, for, I started my career as a pre-hospital provider. I very much continue to be a pre-hospital provider in, in my role currently. And, um, and, you know, I get to see both sides. And I think it goes a long way when the trauma surgeon uh, you know, spends time and acknowledges your presence and talks to you. Like we, that should be mandatory. Yeah. You interact with EMS. Take a minute to talk to those guys. Give them a pearl and move forward. Man, those guys, it's invaluable for the pre-hospital provider. Agreed. Great having you on. Great Always a pleasure, you. man. Hope we can do it again. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. 
Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.